This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we will have a bit of a fish wrap for you later on in the show. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap. But first, we are going to speak with Nikki Davidoff. He is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author who has a new book that has received, uh, I think, deserved an enormous acclaim. The title is The Other Side of Prospect. He will be with us in the Valley later on this year. But this book has received so much attention that I think that our listeners want to know about it. So let's start, if we could, please. Nikki, this book is a story. It's really three stories that are combined to tell a story of a city, a person, a a miscarriage of justice, and tells us a lot about ourselves and about the world we live in. I am particularly fascinated by the fact that this all takes place in New Haven, which is a world of, well, two different worlds, one of which is the most prominent, or certainly one of the two or three most prominent universities in the United States, Yale, and a community of very poor, mostly people of color, and somehow coexist, that lead to this miscarriage of justice that is, well, almost predictable. Why don't you start us off by telling us the arc of the story you tell in your book, the other side of prospect, and perhaps in answering that question, could tell our listeners who have not yet read your book what prospect is. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Uh, New Haven, Connecticut is demographers and um, people who study such things might say that it's a, they've used words like typical and representative American city. So that the problems of New, New Haven's a small city with big city problems and issues. And um, so if you look at New Haven in lots of ways, for a long time, it's been a good place to sort of assess assess currents of behavior and just social trend in America. And having grown up in New Haven, I was well aware that there were two New Havens, just as there are two Connecticut's and there are two Americas, and there are many cities like this, where you have great opportunity juxtaposed with lost opportunity. And I say lost because New Haven's really a post-industrial city. It used to be a place where there was ample opportunity for uplift, even for people who came in um, to the city as immigrants. And this is every major immigrant wave from Irish and Italian right through the great migration of African-Americans. Um, and, but I was particularly interested since my childhood when New Haven became a city where there was much more abundant struggle. I was interested in the relationship between just what you said, very, very poor neighborhoods that are often segregated that are adjacent to places that aren't just wealthy, but just sort of represent what many people consider the best of America, a real opportunity, the, a university that is, it's almost, I mean, if you were a kid like me who grew up in New Haven, it's a paradise for a young person, Yale is. And then right there are young people who don't feel a part of that at all. And I knew that because, you know, I played baseball with them and I went to school with them. And I, you know, felt that way sometimes myself. I felt like a kind of an in-between kid as many writers do. We are speaking with Nicholas Davidoff. His new book is The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. The Other Side of Prospect. Tell our listeners who don't yet know what prospect is. 
Sure. Um, Prospect Street is a street that it's a lovely street that is sort of at the peak of a hill that runs straight across much of the city. And one side of Prospect Street is <clears throat> it's large, very beautiful houses. You know, Yale has a wonderful architecture school, so New Haven has abundant, really um, lovely architecture. And the other side once was a really flourishing working class neighborhood. When we say Ville, uh, the neighborhood is called Newhallville, and there are villes all, all over New England because these are places that were created by businesses where people needed employees to come and work at their business. And so they built worker housing, and these became known as villes. The first one in New Haven was called Whitneyville because Eli Whitney built it for his gun factory. Anyway, now Prospect Street is juxtaposed between a neighborhood where there's real struggle, not it's not just employees of a of a of a manufacturing concern. It's you know factory. It's 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 lots of people who some some people still live there who live there because they love their neighborhood and they really care about it. Other people live there because they're really straightened and that's what they can afford. And it's so close. You can't imagine how close it is to a completely different experience of life. And I was interested in that juxtaposition, what it felt like, and at at its at at its most urgent what the relationship is between income inequality and violence. And I will say that even in America's most violent neighborhoods, you know, the people who commit violence and the amount of violence that is there is very small, but it's just like shark attacks in a beach community, right? It doesn't take much and has tremendous effect on the people who are living there. So what I did over eight years was I spent a lot of time with young people trying to understand <clears throat> the tensions that exist in, 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 a, in a juxtaposition like that. Your book has been characterized as a repertorial tour de force, a searing portrait of injustice. You interviewed hundreds of people for this book. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't think of it. I mean, there are, th there are particularly two main characters in the book, but I thought of it more as the main characters of the neighborhood. And I thought that it was my obligation to as much as possible, if the neighborhood's gonna be the main character, talk to as many people as I could. And then over and over and over, because the thing about writing about poverty or writing about violence, writing about policing, these are things that a lot of people have a lot of feelings about. And often those feelings have to do with people, I mean, poverty persists in part because people don't wanna think about it. And often people blame other people for being poor. And I felt that it was, I mean, it's crucial in anything you do to be accurate, but here I really wanted to be accurate, especially because I didn't want there to be the opportunity for people to be dismissive of this, just as so many of the problems persist that I'm writing about because, because people, people do ignore them. And, um, and also, you know, when you're, it, it probably would have been easy with a book like this to write it as though it was a true crime story because the book is centered into the, you know, sort of the, the initiating incident is a murder that happens in 2006. So it would have been, I think, a simpler to write a genre book, to write a true crime story. But what I really wanted to do was explain how the legacy of the past and how the collective life of a city and American sort of experience and, and is all comes together to inform what appears to be uh, just an ordinary act of violence in an ordinary American community. But to me, I thought and still think that it's all in that one tragic moment is so much American history. This tragic moment is a murder. This tragic moment leads to an enormous injustice, and it is one that is repeated 
time after time after time. Give us the arc of the story, because I want to ask you some specifics. I know the book is much bigger than a true crime story, but this crime story just really affected me. So share it with our listeners, if you would, please. Sure. So this is a neighborhood, as I said, that was formed and reformed by waves of immigration. In other words, people from Ireland, Italy, Germany, Eastern Europe, and finally the great migration of African-Americans coming from the South. And in New Haven, if you, if, you, if you drive around New Haven, you'll see lots of South Carolina license plates too, still because the relationship between the South and the North is very strong, in, 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 particularly in that, in, in that neighborhood of New Hallville. Anyway, if you came early during the Great Migration, in other words, around World War II or you know, the next couple of decades afterwards, your experience typically was a lot like the previous immigrant experiences going back into the 19th century, which is the event you, you came to New Haven, you found a job, you found opportunity, you could eventually buy a house in that neighborhood and maybe even then move outside the city later on if that was your choice. You'd buy a car, you could buy, you know, you could pay for your children's education. It was a, you know, it's a, to some degree, people talk a lot about the American dream, right? And this was true for Pete Fields, whose family came from South Carolina and they arrived in New Haven and he eventually lived in a really nice house outside New Haven. But he loved his old neighborhood where he'd spent, you know, his teenage years in New Hallville. And he came back often to play in a card game and, as, and you know, and visit his friends at a, at a sort of as, it's, it's a southerners club um, that exists in New Hallville. And one day when he was back in the neighborhood visiting, two kids ran up on the car and they wanted his wallet and he wouldn't give it to them and they shot him. And um, the quick and the quick the quick explanation of what follows afterwards is that the wrong person was the wrong 16 year old kid was arrested and went to prison for this crime and there are many many details but essentially that's it so when i heard about this that person whose name is bobby had already been in prison i think at that point for eight years on a 38 year sentence and he had you know he had he again had 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 he pled guilty under great pressure from his lawyer but um he insisted he didn't do it and now he had another lawyer and um, but there didn't seem to be any hope for him. So it's two tragedies. The <clears throat> tragedy of the wrong person being accused, the tragedy of the, mis the bad representation, the tragedy of the guilty plea to something someone didn't do, precipitated in significant part by the tragedy of a false confession. He confessed to a crime he didn't commit something that just really affects me because I had a client who confessed to a crime he didn't commit, much in the same way a very young black person being pressured and pushed and really just cajoled by the police said, if you just say this, we'll let you go. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, people, most people, and I, it, my, me included, would think that you would never con confess to something that you serious that you didn't do, especially the, the most horrible thing you can do to another person, right? But if you are in circumstances where you're a young person, you've grown up under fairly difficult circumstances, you're in a room with two, and this is, I think, particularly true and in this way, particularly poignant for me, for someone who has a sense of justice and a sense of, a real sense of ethic. And if you're a young person, you're in a room with two police officers and you're there hour after hour after hour, and they're insisting that you did something, and they give you a series of options, none of which are good. Like you'll never see your family again, but if you just tell us you did it, well, you can go. Or if you don't say you did this, you're gonna get the death penalty or you'll be in prison for life. 
but if you if if you'll just say you did it, you know, you can get probation. If things like this happen, you might be worn down eventually. And if you have trust in the justice system, you might eventually also say, well, if I just get out of this room, then you know, good things will happen. And I guess what I want to say about all this is that one of the if I talk if if I think about the many things that are particular to growing up in a community like like Bobby the one that Bobby grew up in, I think one of the things I think about is vulnerability because it's just a problem of American policing. And in the same way, certainly it, I think it also is for journalists or for teachers or for doctors, all kinds of people. If you don't know your audience or you don't know the community you're working with, you don't know your patients, you don't know your students in a real way, you tend to lump them together. And if you, if you don't have the capacity to individuate, when trouble comes, everybody might seem the same to you, and that's when mistakes happen. And in a neighborhood that is simultaneously over and under policed, when there's a crime, if police haven't built trust with the community, nobody is gonna tell them what really happened, even though almost usually everybody knows. And so a kid who's standing with a group of kids listening to music, you can't tell which kid is the kid who's actually just a regular kid, he's just around and you can't tell which kid is really into it in deep into the streets. You won't know. And that's where mistakes in law enforcement make. And, you know, this is a really and, and interrupt. Let me interrupt because, because for law enforcement, what they want to do is solve the crime. They want to say, we got the murderer, the person's off the street, we did it, we solved the problem. And they solve the problem by telling the public, we got the guy. Whether it's true or not, this is really quite secondary. But giving this public impression of we're on top of this, we've solved it, that's important to the police. Well, certainly solving a crime is really important. Yes, I, I, you know, I interviewed, I would say, at least 40 police officers for, for, for this book. I mean, I felt as though my responsibility is to everyone when I'm doing this. And I think just as when you look at a neighborhood and you look at a community, it's important to individuate. I think it is true with policing as well. And one of the things that I learned, I mean, I, you know, not just New Haven policing, but just as well as I could making a study of American policing, one of the things that seemed most true and really important is that, and quite a few people in policing told me this, is that it really is hierarchical like the military. And so leadership, leadership really, really, leadership, as you saw it in Memphis, the way of leadership is often the way of how things go. And if leadership is, as you imply, too interested in solving cases and not interested enough in what we would call community policing, in other words, getting to know people within your community, working cases in a really meticulous way, bad things can happen. And police officers, the, I mean, I met all kinds of people who are police officers, and I, in my estimation, most of them were, went into the work for the right reasons. But, you know, like everything else, it can get really complicated fast, and this was a particularly complicated and tragic sequence of events. We're speaking with Nicholas Davidoff, his new book is The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. Bobby, the young man who was accused and then pled guilty to a murder that he didn't commit, was sentenced to 38 years. And then another lawyer appears in this story, something we're going to pick up right after this break. More 
Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Laura Guzik, Vice President Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our conversation with Nicholas Davidoff, whose new book is The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. So and we're not giving away the story. The story is actually quite well known in some circles, a story of a false confession, a false conviction, a, a wrong, wrongful conviction. Uh, the, uh, the young man, Bobby, uh, goes to jail, gets a 38-year sentence, um, but is released uh, after eight or nine years in prison. Perhaps you could give us the thumbnail sketch of how he gets out, notwithstanding that he pled guilty, notwithstanding that the guilty plea was to a crime he didn't commit. Perhaps you could tell us about that. Well, Bobby had an alleged co-defendant. In other words, there were two teenagers who committed the robbery gone wrong that became a murder. And... Um, where Bobby pled, his his alleged co-defendant went to trial and was acquitted. And a lawyer in New Haven who learned of this was outraged, and he dedicated many years. His name's Ken Rosenthal, and he dedicated many years to trying, you know, to try to have Bobby's case looked at. And eventually, the state does revisit the case. And Bobby, I mean, it was an amazing thing. I went with a lawyer on the day that Bobby was told that he was being set free, and it was really something to see. Um, but, you know, we all, many of us know about mass incarceration. Something that's slightly less known is the concept of mass, re- is ma- mass re-entry, which means that most people who are in prison eventually will be released. And 
people know what it takes. I mean, no, people don't know. It takes certain skills to, you know, thrive in a community, to thrive in a school, to thrive in a workplace, and it takes certain skills to thrive in prison. But whatever it takes to thrive in prison, among other things, overcoming boredom and stress, aren't necessarily skills that are useful to you when you come out and you're expected suddenly, you know, you messed up, now fix yourself, go get a job. Suddenly, if you're 16 when you go to prison and now you're 25, be an adult, be a flourishing adult, get a job, you know? And this is, this is difficult trying, trying life experience. And so I, one other thing I would quickly say is that people are typically, when you go into prison, if you're 16 years old, you might come out at 25, but your life experience out in the world is still 16. And so much about you will still have the inclinations of a 16 year old. And um, this is something that people who study reentry talk about over and over again, how people who are already have the weight of whatever brought them to prison and then the weight of the experience and then the, the, the weight of coming out back into the world, there's the accumulation of all that weight, which counterbalances against the, what most people who, most people who are, who are in prison they don't want to go back. It's designed as a place where you don't want to be, right? But it is really, really difficult for most people coming out of prison to make their way. Among other things, you've got a sort of a scarlet P on your forehead. One aspect of your book, The Other Side of Prospect, a story of violence, injustice, and the American city, Nicholas Davidoff, one aspect that I really appreciate is the way you merge and weave the big stories with this story of Bobby. And you have a, a story of reentry that is really just sad, uh, but also compelling, uplifting. Uh, perhaps you could uh, read a couple of paragraphs. I always like to give our listeners a sense of what a book sounds like, at least in part. And I'm looking at the beginning of chapter 17. Perhaps you could read those uh, two short first paragraphs to let our listeners know what the book sounds like. Sure. I mean, much of the book is a narrative with characters, and this is a this is sort of the sum. What what you want to hear is the summary of how reentry works, and so I'll read it. In chapter seventeen, in 1975, the national prison population had been 240,593, but by the time Bobby was sentenced in 2007, he was one among 2,310,300 people living locked up in America. Now, seven years later, when Bobby's release sent him joining 650,000 others out of the block and back into free society, mass incarceration had created an inevitable mass reentry. Reentry was an enormous problem Americans tended to know very little about. It meant the change over time of the formerly incarcerated rejoining the community, a process that left most lost in transition. Within three years of their release, two thirds of former prisoners were rearrested. After five years, the number rose to three quarters. For those, like Bobby, who'd spent nine years in prison, the recidivism rate was 83%. 100 released prisoners returned every month to New Haven, where a judge grimly assessing the justice system's approach to reentry said, if we were a corporation, we'd be out of business. Let me ask you this. In terms of all of the things that you reported on and all of the interviews you did and all the research and all this, in this telling of this remarkable tale, the story, this true story. Um, was there something other than or in addition to reentry that most caught your attention that when you finished this project, well, I suppose you still live with it day to day, but when you finished the, the reporting and the writing, you said to yourself, boy, I didn't know that, 
and that has changed me in some way? Oh my goodness. I mean, there were so many things I didn't know. I mean, it was a, you know, eight years of seven day work weeks. I mean, it's immersion and it's immersion. And, you know, I mean, I think that the whole project is about not knowing things. It's like a writer who I just have loved since I was a child when my mother was obsessed with her and used to tell us what she was reading is Virginia Woolf. And she, Virginia Woolf often, you know, told herself, if you want to be a writer, you have to immerse yourself in the experiences of other people. It's not about you. And I think that, you know, for me, learning as much as I could about the experiences of so many different elements of a community was itself, I mean, a beautiful and moving thing. I would also just say that over and over, it's what I said earlier, the lesson for me was that whatever your business, again, education or radio or journalism or medicine or policing, is that everything's more complicated than you think it is. And the more you embrace complication, the more successful you will be at your work. And I knew that as a writer, because you know, it, I, I spent a lot of my life getting ready to write this book. This is my sixth book, and I, it, I, I knew since I was since I was a young person that this was something I'd want to write about. But I also had this feeling that I wasn't experienced enough. And part of being an experienced writer is knowing how to deal better with complication. And I guess for me, that's a big part of it. Everything's more interesting than you think of it. it think it is everything's more complicated you have to everything requires patience and listening lots and lots of listening the better you listen in all those professions i think the better it goes for you we've been speaking with nicholas davidoff his new book is the other side of prospect a story of violence injustice and the american city he is as he just mentioned the author of some five other books including the catcher was a spy and in the country of a country uh, he has been a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Uh, he will be with us in the Valley later on this year. You want to you read this book, and you want to buy it at your local independent bookstore where it is available, again, The Other Side of Prospect. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for this book. Thanks for the insights, and thank you for brilliant writing. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for saying all that, and thank you for your time. It was really nice to be here. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The new school in Amherst at the Fort River School site will cost the average homeowner an additional $500 per year in their taxes. That is, if they approve the construction of the $98 million elementary school this spring. Finance Director Sean Mangano said the project will impact property tax bills for the next 30 years when he presented town council with a preliminary look. The estimates are based on the town paying around $54 million toward the project. A teacher at Springfield's Renaissance School has been arrested on several charges, including aggravated rape of a child. According to Springfield Police, 44-year-old David Wermay of Florence 
was arrested around 7 a.m. on January 27th. He had been under investigation for several weeks by detectives assigned to the Special Victims Unit at the Springfield Police Department. The crimes allegedly occurred around 10 years ago when Wermay was teaching at the now-closed New Leadership Charter School in Springfield. Wermay has been placed on administrative leave since January 27th. Legislators are looking at ways to regulate sky-high electric bills. Senator Paul Mark is filing a bill with other Western Mass legislators to get the Department of Public Utilities to better regulate the energy prices in times of uncertainty and volatility. There has to be a recognition that the price of these commodities has gone down, and so accordingly the rates that people are, are, are paying need to go down as well. Mark is the lead sponsor in the Senate, while Lindsay Sabadosa and John Barrett are sponsoring the bill in the House. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 20 to 26. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow. Could be a little burst of light snow showers during the middle of the day, but mainly it's rain in the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Mixture of sun and clouds up into the 50s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden dijo el lunes que las relaciones entre Washington y Beijing no se debilitaron por el derribo por parte de Estados Unidos de un presunto globo espía chino durante el fin de semana. Hablando con los periodistas fuera de la Casa Blanca, Biden dijo que siempre tuvo la opinión de que el globo debía ser derribado tan pronto como fuera apropiado. Cuando se le preguntó si el incidente del globo debilita las relaciones entre Estados Unidos y China, Biden dijo no, le dejamos claro a China lo que vamos a hacer. Ellos entienden nuestra posición, no vamos a retroceder. Por su parte, el Pentágono dijo durante el fin de semana que globos espías chinos habían volado brevemente sobre Estados Unidos al menos tres veces durante la administración del presidente Donald Trump y una anteriormente bajo la del presidente Joe Biden. Mientras tanto, la Guardia Costera de Estados Unidos dijo el lunes que estaba imponiendo una zona de seguridad temporal en las aguas de Surfside Beach, Carolina del Sur, en el área donde fue derribado el globo. Altos funcionarios estadounidenses se han ofrecido a informar a personas de la administración anterior sobre los detalles de sobrevuelos de globos anteriores cuando Trump era presidente. En otras informaciones, el presidente republicano de la Cámara de Representantes de Estados Unidos, Kevin McCarthy, pidió al presidente demócrata Joe Biden que acepte compromisos y recortes de gastos, ya que los dos siguen estancados sobre el aumento del límite de deuda de la nación de 31.4 billones de dólares. McCarthy habló el lunes antes de que Biden pronuncie el discurso anual sobre el Estado de la Unión en una sesión conjunta del Congreso este martes, con el objetivo de adelantarse al presidente y reforzar su papel como el principal negociador del Congreso. A pesar a pesar de lo que parece ser un enfrentamiento, McCarthy salió de una reunión con Biden la semana pasada diciendo que creía que los dos podrían encontrar puntos en común. Un día después, McCarthy dijo a los periodistas que el presidente había acordado reunirse nuevamente. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our studio and to our show, Cheryl Studley, who is the artistic director of Serious Play. Serious Play, well, I, well, let me back up. The reason Cheryl ha, is here with us today and has with us two very special guests and performers is because there is, is a performance this weekend, which we want you to know about. So, Cheryl, I will leave to you the pleasure of the introduction of the two very special performers who we have with us and who are a part of Serious Play. 
Let's start with what serious play is and what we will have available to see this weekend. Hi. Um, serious play is an ensemble based in Northampton, Massachusetts, that really is an ensemble that has at its baseline social change. Um, and uh, I've been in collaboration with Molly Maxner to start the lab program at APE. And this is a program for artists of all disciplines in different phases of their theater making. And it's a collaboration between APE and Serious Play. And this year we're focused on emerging theater makers. Um, so with me today are two of those theater makers from the lab, Isabel Bouchou and Jackson Pels. Uh, they are doing and presenting a work in progress uh, musical plant. And I'm going to let them tell you a little bit about it. We should also note that APE is the performance space on Main Street in Northampton. The initials APE, which stand for something that no one except those who are <laughs> actually can remember what, what, what the acronym is. APE, got it. It just is what it is. Okay, so uh, let's turn to the performers. Sure. So uh, my name is Isabel Bashu. Uh, and I'm Jackson Pels. And together we are creating a uh, absurdist um, musical comedy, um, really based off of the premise. It's it's a extended, uh, it's a uh, exaggerated fact that um, we we as humans share fifty percent of our gene DNA with plants, and so the logic in the show continues that. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt, but yeah. I do actually stop yeah. there. We <laughs> percent we share what percent of our DNA uh-huh. with what? So we currently share as human beings, we share roughly 50% of our gene DNA still with plants. Uh, Specifically, you can think of it as the real fact is trees specifically, meaning that 50% of our genes are still made up of genes that are made from plants. So we share 50% of our DNA can still be found in plant DNA. Yeah, I kind of thought that's what you said. I didn't quite believe it. No, no, that's that's fair. (laughs) That's when, when we saw the fact, that's what made us want to start writing this show. But the kind of punchline that the whole show is based off of is that if you share 50% of your DNA with a plant and another person shares 50% of your DNA with a plant, then technically two people could come together and become one plant. And that is the premise of the show. A musical comedy that's coming up at APE, Work in Progress. Uh, Yeah, we have a quick little... blurb a quick little description of the show if you want to read it Isabel is that cool sure yeah so the play is a goofy submersive and dreamlike and that is part of the fun it is a tale of a young boy who has lost contact with his mystic mother and is forced to live underground abandoning the academic regime of his intellectual father a man too smart for his own enlightenment the boy undergoes training and experimentation of his mind body and soul in order to try and solve every single problem in the world Turning us all into trees, something like that. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, yes or no? Well, I guess that's kind of the thing that he's trying to figure out. How do you actually get people to go along with an idea that he's not even so sure of himself? He's figuring out at the same time. It's a musical comedy. So, uh, Cheryl, you start to whisper to me, but better if it's into the microphone. <laughs> it's a musical comedy besides all of that. Okay. So what is it that we'll be seeing? This is a work in progress. So what will we see this weekend at APE? That's right, yes. So we have been in uh, development uh, making this show for over a year now. And uh, basically, we we are part of this lab, as Cheryl mentioned, that's this year-long program where we get to meet with uh, a group of five people, cohorts, emerging artists, creating our own works. 
And so uh, this, this, this two weeks that we're here in Northampton, uh, we are going to be, uh, we're, we, are, we are currently workshopping and, and developing new material for this play. And so uh, this, this Saturday and Sunday, we'll be uh, performing basically what we have so far in progress, which is a bunch of, a collection of songs. Buzz. Yeah, who's actually writing the music? Who's doing the notation? Who's writing the lyrics? Yeah, that's, that's both of us. Um, we started out, this whole project started out around a little over a year ago with Isabel and I. We were in a special program in school called Studio for Creative Practice. It was essentially incentive for artists to begin to understand their own process about how you make your own work. And Isabel and I were both very curious about the relationship specifically between language and music. And so we started to just want to play with these concepts. And originally this first song came out, um, really just trying to have fun and play with this relationship. And over that time, a story has started to emerge from that song. And together we're both the lyricists and the music writers for the show. Cheryl, there is hope for our future. <laughs> there is. Theater is alive and well. So tell us, I think from all, all three of you, how did you come together? How did you find each other? What school are you in? You know, there are about 100 questions. Just answer any one of them. Sure, yeah. So we met, so Jackson and I both met at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts, which is where we also met Molly Maxner, who was one of the co-leads of APE. So that, so that is where we met and, uh, and started working on this play. Started branching out, so to speak. Exactly. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is where we point out that the puns are free. <laughs> okay, so you met you met at school. I guess we should ask Cheryl, how did you bring the, these two artists and the other three who were part of this ensemble? I think that you're putting together uh, at Serious Play. How did you how did how did that work? Um, when Molly and I conceived the lab, which is a theater practice, and as many of you know, Serious Play develops work. Uh, often, we only have two shows a year developing devised work. So as Molly and I got together, she had been teaching at North Carolina School for the Arts. I had been at Holyoke Community College and also doing serious play. So developing new work and devising work was what we both were interested in and passing it on. Uh, both, uh, myself getting older and Molly um, in her middle years, I decided we would like to inspire young theater makers developing their own original work. So um, uh, Isabel and Jackson, along with Marcia Gomes and Condra, uh, Condra Dune and Herman Parks and um, uh, Marina Zarita, were chosen. Two of them were from Molly's contacts with uh, teaching at North Carolina School for the Arts, and two of them were from Serious Play, Marcia Gomes and Condra Dune and Herman Parks. So we'll be able to see the play. Uh, does it have a name? I should have asked long ago. Yeah, the, the name is called Plant, the musical. <laughs> <laughs> and this is how far along in its progress? We're going to see a work in progress. So it's not the final, the final production, but it is pretty far along or you wouldn't be presenting it publicly here. And it sounds like, it sounds, it, no, 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 it, it, it's the tension of a deadline that makes things happen. It really, it's true. Um, and I'm wondering what we're going to see because it really sounds fun and funny. And, but tell us, uh, for those of us who say work in progress, I'm not sure exactly what that means. What does it mean? Totally. For us right now, it essentially means that 
we so we've been researching and putting things together for around a year and we've just really started to put this research process into an actual script so what you're going to see is we have developed three very specifically three songs that through our work in combining melodies and trying to shove as many different themes into one song uh essentially we're going to be sharing those three songs which really are a accumulation of a bunch of different songs and just those, shoved into one songs are not like three and a half minutes long yeah. each of them are like eight plus plus minutes long uh -huh. so they're they're just a, uh we're really hoping honestly to make one long 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 song is the mm -hmm. entire musical yeah were you music majors were you theater majors uh, mm -hmm. what wh what what's the origin of your this is a terrible yeah. story. Just talk no. to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so we're both uh, acting uh, majors, that, and we graduated with, with drama degrees at UNC School of the Arts. Um, and so we're also both singer-songwriters, and, and Jackson is a self-taught multi-instrumentalist, and so he's accompanying us on the piano during the show. And so we both have a real background in, in songwriting and storytelling. Um, and so that, that, is, that is how we mm -hmm. got together and, and created the show. And they have a band also called... Pennies for Breakfast. Pennies That'll for be Breakfast. Playing yeah. This Friday night at Arts Night Out at the APE Gallery, 126 Main Street. I, I just have uh, one quick question for Isabel. Just a follow up on what you said. It sounds like an opera when you have just mm. the music, one long song that goes the entire length of the production, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think that's what we're really excited about with this this structure of this musical is that there are a bunch of small musical moments that we recall throughout the show. And so we just, we're really excited about playing with continuously subverse, subverting and, and uh, m maneuvering and finding our way through the uh, sort of story. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, essentially it's, it's, it's one long song made up of very separate musical moments that don't span a whole song. Bill, yeah. the creativity in the studio is unbelievable. <laughs> I am feeling how to put this diminished. <laughs> I, I would be interested to know, you are the two performers, or, or there are others. Uh, tell, tell us about that aspect yeah, of the performance. Well, yeah, so, it's, so it is the two of us, and there are six characters in this musical, and we are essentially playing all six of those characters at the exact same time. So we are playing, so we are playing the young boy at the same time, singing and speaking his text, and, and thought, um, yes. <laughs> wow, there is a lot of creativity. I thought it was relatively creative, but I'm going to actually reevaluate all of that after this It's unbelievable. Really, yeah. I, it is. So It's called um, Plant. Plant the Musical. Plant the musical. Let me go back to Cheryl Studley, who is the artistic director of Serious Play. Tell us again where it is and when it is and how we can buy tickets. You can come and share the work in progress of Plant uh, at APE Gallery, 126 Main Street, Northampton, this Saturday, February 11th at 7.30 and Sunday, February 12th at 2 p.m., Suggested donation at the door, $10, but no one will be turned away. Which is part of the ethos of Serious Play, which is a community-based, spectacularly wonderful and successful arts organization. It's been here for how long, Cheryl? 28 years. Yeah, well, I heard that part of you. Well, how'd you describe it? Someone was getting older, and I want to let you know that I've read about that, but I want to know how much I appreciate you and Serious Play. I want to—I really want to thank uh, Isabel Bashu and Jackson Peltz 
thank you so much for being here. Thank you for this performance. Thanks for working here. Can't wait to see your work this weekend, and I can't wait to see the, ser the serious, serious plays, final production of this, which will be when, by the way? Do we have an idea? <laughs> Hopefully not too many years. Away. <laughs> a year, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully a year, and they are fabulous artists. Okay, we'll see you there, and we'll see you there this Thank weekend. You so Thank you all Thank so you. very much. We'll be right back. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit Hug HugYourMoney.com. What is Brockton, Massachusetts known for? For me, Brockton means a good night's sleep. Because Brockton is where they make therapeutic mattresses. Not Tempur-Pedic. Not trying to mislead you here. Therapeutic. The lesser known mattress made in Massachusetts. Does that alone mean they're any good? It doesn't. But they are good. In fact, they're great. On par with famous name mattresses that cost a lot more. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. A lot of people have purchased a therapeutic mattress at Talon Furniture over the years, at least a thousand, and they're all sleeping well. A therapeutic mattress really is as good as the famous name mattress. And they're made by fellow Bay Staters. In the grand scheme of the global mattress economy, therapeutic is close to home. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. What I really love is a therapeutic mattress is clean. No toxic chemicals or off-gassing. I've walked the factory floor. I've seen how they're made. Talon Furniture, home of therapeutic just down the hill from Amherst College, in the sleepy part of town. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday downtown sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we have a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspaper's tomorrow's fish wrap. 
I want to spend some time with Dan and Buzz reflecting on President Biden's State of the Union speech last night before a joint session of Congress. I was very moved by his content and, as always, somewhat disappointed by the oratory skills of the president because I just don't find him inspiring in the same way that I did, for example, Barack Obama. Still, the content was great, and the way he played the Republicans when he said, oh, there are people here who want to sunset uh, Medicare and Social Security. They all booed. And he said, well, great, because that's exactly what they've been proposing. They have been actually proposing, let's cut uh, benefits by 22% or give or take. Uh, that's exactly what. And so he said, well, let's all stand up for seniors and say, we were not going to cut Medicare. We're not going to cut Social Security. And they all stood up. And he said, well, I guess we're I all, guess in, we're all in, in agreement. Right. That was, that <laughs> I was, thought that was a masterful. theatrical and a masterful moment. Buzz, yeah, you, I thought that was a long time congressional sort of uh, veteran uh, who knew how to play that one. And he also said, by the way, he squeezed in there, just write to me and I'll send you their proposal. Right, because they, because there, there is Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling, but no, I didn't, no, I didn't, and it's exactly what she did. She of said, "Liar, liar!" <laughs> but of course, it was Rick Scott who actually said it in whatever he was, the Senate uh, Congressional Campaign Committee chair wrote, "We should look at sunsetting it all the time so that we could re up it or not." Yeah, I thought that was powerful. I, you know, Bill, do you think for? I don't know. Of course, we're so sort of partisan. It's hard to see how pe- to predict how people. Um, sort of in the middle, if there are any centrists left, um, felt. But I, I, I kind of like the populist Joe Biden. I, I kind of like the way that he delivers it like a regular person and, and without pretension. But his content, I agree with you, was, was very good. I give him very high marks on what he talked about. The way that he said it, I, you know, I look at him as like Joe, right? I mean, it's okay with me. Right. I think it's okay. I, I mean, I just wish it were sort of more energetic. I understand he has this just enormous accomplishment of overcoming stuttering. Still, I just wish we could get that clip where you want to jump up out of your chair and say, yes, I'm with him 100% all the way. I know what Um, you mean. Yes. So let me turn to one other story, if I might. This is front page of the New York Times today, the story of Tyree Nichols. It just gets worse and worse. Here's the first sentence of the story under the headline, Officer Shared Nichols' Picture After Beating. Dateline Memphis. As Tyree Nichols sat propped against a police car, bloody, dazed, and handcuffed after being beaten by a group of Memphis police officers, one of those officers took a picture of him and sent it to at least five people, the Memphis Police Department said in a document released by the state on Tuesday. This story is just so sick. It's so appalling, and it depraved people wearing badges and carrying guns. But that's the problem in some respect, Buzz. They don't seem to be depraved. They seem to be pretty regular people in a lot of ways, and sort of piecing together the psychology what what allows people, police officers, to do this. I just I can't wrap my mind around it. It's impossible because you're a, a person of goodwill who doesn't wish harm on other people. But, I, you know, I saw it. I, I, when we've talked about this, I can't help. We're all products of our experience. In my experience teaching uh, police officers in Greenfield Community College, these were people who were looking for a career that would provide them with respect and a decent salary and a pension. And so they go into policing. 
And when they go into policing, sometimes I saw it. I, I saw people who were bullies in high school that I knew because my kids went to high school with them and who were on the edge of criminality in high school and drinking underage and driving while drunk and all that stuff. And then I saw them become police officers and they enrolled in my class. I, it's a difficult thing to indict everybody because it's not fair. But at the same time, I saw it. It's not fair and it's not accurate. That said, let me read one more sentence from this story. Sending the photograph taken on a personal cell phone to acquaintances, including at least one outside the police department, violated policies about keeping information confidential, according to the documents. But police officials said it was also part of a pattern of mocking, abusive, and blatantly unprofessional behavior by the officers that also included shouting profanities at Mr. Nichols, laughing after the beating, and bragging about their involvement. It hurts to hear it. It does. Uh, I'd like to note the passing of two individuals, one, one who was, of course, a hero here in the Valley, John Bracey. He should be a hero all over the country. And a founder of the, of the African-American Studies Department at UMass Amherst, a real hero of the civil rights movement and someone who was indispensable to the fight for social justice here in the Valley. Tremendous loss, but he's left a legacy that's going to keep fighting for civil rights. He has. And I'd also like to note someone not local, but David Harris, who was a leader of the resistance to the Vietnam War draft, has passed, I believe, of cancer. He died at 76 yesterday or the day before. His The album that Joan Baez, who they were married briefly before he went to prison, sang about him, David's album, an album full of songs that to this day move me, move my heart, and make me feel inspired to fight oppression. And we'll keep celebrating activism in the next hour. You look the other way Yeah, me and Frankie laughing and drinking Nothing feels better this than is blood talk the talk. blood Taking turns dancing with Maria While the band plays. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. President Biden hits the road today to begin selling the economic plan he touted in last night's State of the Union. Jobs are coming back. Pride is coming back because choices we made in the last several years. Mr. Biden was jeered by some Republicans during his first address to a divided Congress. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. 
At one point, Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene shouted out, idiot. On CBS Mornings, Vice President Harris called it one of the GOP's theatrical outbursts. I think that there sadly um, tends to be uh, a theatrical element to that evening as time has gone on. Mr. Biden visits Madison, Wisconsin today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise stop in the UK. He met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, then addressed Parliament and asked for more weapons to help fight the war with Russia. We really know the victory, the victory will change the world. And this will be a change that the world has long needed. Zelensky is meeting with King Charles at Buckingham Palace right now. He flies to Paris next to meet with President Macron. International investigators are pointing a finger at Vladimir Putin and the downing of a Malaysia Airlines plane almost nine years ago. Reporter Lauren Kamato from Amsterdam. Investigators say recorded telephone conversations between Russian officials give strong indications that Mr. Putin decided to provide the missile to Moscow-based separatists in eastern Ukraine. Prosecutors said Wednesday that with no new leads, there will be no more prosecutions. But they say the world now knows what happened to flight MH17. New sign the pandemic's wound down. CBS's Cami McCormick says the Secretary of State has hosted a final virtual gathering of a global action group on COVID. Secretary of State Antony Blinken opened the meeting with the good news. We know the pandemic is not over, but we have reached what the WHO considers a transition point. And he thanked the countries taking part for their hard work during the pandemic. We're building a world better prepared, prevent, detect, and respond to the next pandemic. Blinken has proposed a new Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy at the State Department. Microsoft's unveiled some of the most powerful artificial intelligence ever made public to incorporate into its search engine and browser. CBS's Tony DeCopel spoke with the company's CEO, Satya Nadella. We clearly are in a kind of arms race when it comes to AI. Where is this going? Well, as you said, it's a new race, and, and it's a new race in the most important software category or the largest software category in search. Uh, let's face it, Google dominates it. Google says it is rolling out a series of new search and maps features powered by AI. Dow down 20, S&P off 15. This is CBS News. Finding great candidates to hire can be like, well, trying to find a needle in a haystack. Sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com free. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Its powerful technology identifies people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. You get qualified candidates fast. So while other companies might deliver a lot of hay, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for the needle in the haystack. Four out of five employers who post a job in ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The new school in Amherst at the Fort River School site will cost the average homeowner an additional $500 per year in their taxes. That is, if they approve the construction of the $98 million elementary school this spring. Finance Director Sean Mangano said the project will impact property tax bills for the next 30 years when he presented town council with a preliminary look. The estimates are based on the town paying around $54 million toward the project. 
A teacher at Springfield's Renaissance School has been arrested on several charges, including aggravated rape of a child. According to Springfield Police, 44-year-old David Wermay of Florence was arrested around 7 a.m. on January 27th. He had been under investigation for several weeks by detectives assigned to the Special Victims Unit at the Springfield Police Department. The crimes allegedly occurred around 10 years ago when Wermay was teaching at the now-closed New Leadership Charter School in Springfield. Wermay has been placed on administrative leave since January 27th. Legislators are looking at ways to regulate sky-high electric bills. Senator Paul Mark is filing a bill with other Western Mass legislators to get the Department of Public Utilities to better regulate the energy prices in times of uncertainty and volatility. There has to be a recognition that the price of these commodities has gone down, and so accordingly the rates that people are, are, are paying need to go down as well. Mark is the lead sponsor in the Senate, while Lindsay Sabadosa and John Barrett are sponsoring the bill in the House. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 20 to 26. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow. Burst of light snow showers during the middle of the day, but mainly it's rain in the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Mixture of sun and clouds up into the 50s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. There is an extremely important case that's been filed before the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. The case flows from a Superior Court judge's uh, ruling, uh, Judge Robert Ullman, who last summer reviewed neuroscience and how the brain develops and determined that people under 21 should not get life without possibility of parole, which in Massachusetts, fortunately, we do not have a death penalty. Uh, and as the death penalty shrivels in its usage uh, throughout the country, life without the possibility of parole has expanded uh, as a punishment for what we call first-degree murder here in Massachusetts. And so this issue of whether or not someone between the ages of 18 and 21 ought to be given life without possibility of parole has been raised by Ruth Greenberg in uh, her filing with the SJC, as we call the Supreme Judicial Court. She represents Sheldon Mattis, who was 18 years of age when he was convicted in 2013 of first-degree murder, and Ruth is joining us today. Hello, Ruth Greenberg. Hello, talk the talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Ruth, you are uh, an extremely experienced criminal defense attorney who has been working in post-conviction remedies, which means that um, your job generally has been kicking in recently at that point after somebody has been convicted after a trial or a plea um, in Superior Court. So could you tell us about your representation of Sheldon Mattis and the issue that uh, we were just talking about involving life without possibility of parole? So I took the talk, I walked the walk, I don't walk it alone. I have partners in this litigation who are Ryan Schiff and Paul Rudolph. And the reason who are, who are we should point out our local attorneys here uh, in, in Northampton and uh, distinguished and I, I think really accomplished and devoted uh, criminal defense attorneys. We should attorneys. Just point that out. They're, they're with Elkins, our Rudolph, and Schiff here in Northampton. Well, wonderful lawyers. And it has taken a village. Frankly, it has taken an army to get this far. But, you know, I, I can report progress when I, you know, we're really talking about what is a child and how long childhood lasts. 
and what people feel about how long childhood lasts because that's how punishment, cruel and unusual punishment works in this country. We're talking about what the law calls evolving norms of human decency. What used to be considered okay in 1802 is no longer considered okay. And this is a, this is a field of law where, I mean, in most fields of law, a progressive person feels despair. Things get worse. Things are going to get worse. But in this one area of the law, how we treat children, things have, we have all been working hard and things are getting better and better and better. When I began the practice of law, children as young as 14 could be sentenced to death for crimes committed at the age of 14. Children, that's no longer true. Children can't get death. Children can't get, uh, for other than crimes of murder, children can't get life, uh, uh, life without parole except for murder anybody under 18. But the question is, as a matter of law, as a matter of public policy, as a matter of constitutional protection, why 18? Yeah, so so Ruth Greenberg, I just want, I think our listeners may know this. If they don't know this, the United States Supreme Court, in a case called Roper versus Simmons, used thermal imaging of the human brain as it developed up to the age of 23 showed there were these yellow spots and blue spots indicating which spots it fully developed and those portions of the brain which are responsible for moral reasoning it said in Roper's versus Simmons are not fully developed until in some people till the age of 23 or even beyond that so what they ruled then is what Ruth is talking about that uh, giving somebody the death sentence giving somebody executing somebody for something that they did when their brain wasn't fully developed in terms of its ability to morally reason was unconstitutional. So is this an offshoot of Roper versus uh, Simmons, uh, Ruth Greenberg? Well, boys love those pictures and courts love those pictures. They love neuroscience. They love to see the outward representation on a graph of what's really an inner and, and developmental spiritual state. So yes, thermal imaging, yes, functional magnetic, resonance imaging. Yes, neuroscience shows us more about the inside of a person's brain. But what we're really talking about, as Elena Kagan put it, is what every parent knows. That is, people who are 20, they're not that grown up. <laughs> they're different. They take chances that older people or really younger people wouldn't take. They're susceptible to peer pressure and most importantly, they have the capacity to reform. They, they, they can change, they can get better. And, and everybody was once 19 and we know, and everyone who's a parent knows, you do change, you do get better, you do have capacity for reform. And that's what these cases are, are based on and what they're growing on. And it's not only the thermal imaging and it's not only the brain scans, it's the softer sciences, the, the psychology and the criminology and the, 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 the evidence about what we call the desistance curve. Stop behaving at age 23, 24, no matter what, what you do, if you keep them in prison, if you let them go free, go free, people basically stop misbehaving as they get older. They do change. And it's that capacity for change that we, we are asking the court to look at. It's what the Supreme Court looked at uh, 
consistently looked at as time passes and what we're asking the court to look at now, this week, today, after 13 solid years of solid litigation. And we're hopeful, we're hopeful that the court will recognize that there are people who committed crimes in 18, 19, and 20 who have reformed themselves, people who just entered who will be able to reform themselves and who are, who are uh, if released, would be able really to give back. I mean, there's an enormous cost to the Commonwealth at keep keeping people in prison who don't need to be in prison. Could you go back and help us understand what the case is precisely at the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court and also explain to us whether the argument is cruel and unusual punishment under the Massachusetts Constitution or whether there's some other basis? So Mr. Mattis is joined by another defendant, a Mr. Robinson, who was 19. He's represented by Rosie Scapiccio, who was very famous and a wonderful lawyer. And we, we are paired with her by the SJC in arguing this question uh, chiefly under state law. The question is state law, a state has a constitution and uh, I, I don't know how sophisticated we are. A state has its own constitution it can provide greater protection for a group of people than the federal constitution does. But the federal constitution also protects young people. And we can argue federally that the, that this same group of people is young enough to, to gain these extra protections. The great thing about being in Massachusetts though, the federal constitution says a punishment has to be both cruel and unusual in order to be forbidden. But the Massachusetts Constitution, you could be either or. It has to be either cruel or unusual in order to, to, to be precluded. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in a, something like this, it's not unusual, really. I, there are many states where a person between 18 and 21 can receive a sentence of life without parole, and certainly in the federal courts, all of them. So it's not unusual, but it's cruel. And in Massachusetts, the cruelty alone is sufficient to, to, to block out a safe space for these kids. And what the hope is and what we're doing in Massachusetts, we are the beginning of turning each state our way because each state has its own constitution and each state can make its own decision how to treat these, these young people. And the hope is, my hope is, our hope is, that as each state becomes more protective, each state will apply its own protections to this group. And then eventually we will reach the federal court with so many states on our side that the other punishment will be not only cruel, but also unusual. If, if a bulk of states, if a group of states say what we hope Massachusetts will say, if the trend in states is to agree with us, then we can go to Washington from some other state, some, some state that doesn't agree and say, our, this, this benighted state is wrong. Let's make, let's make cruelty unusual. So Ruth, I have a question. If, if in fact the court, the Supreme Judicial Court rules the way that you hope that it does, and um, we eliminate life without possibility of parole. 
for someone between the ages of 18 and 21. What then does happen? Does someone then have, who has been serving such a sentence, living under no possibility of parole, do they get a parole hearing or do they go back to resentencing in the court where they were sentenced? We were very fortunate in, in this state to get the agreement of some prosecutors, including the prosecutors in Suffolk County, that in fact, these, these children are different. The 18, 19, and 20-year-old young people are different. Suffolk County has said to us, and Berkshire County joined us, and the, uh, and the Northern District joined us also in saying, these children are entitled to some constitutional protection. So the question before the court really is, what protection is there? So the district attorneys have in their, they've met us part way. The district attorneys, some say, these children should be resentenced. Every single one of them, we think there are 206, maybe 202, we're not sure, should each go back before a trial judge and say, sentence me with the possibility of life without parole still on the table. But that's not what we're arguing. And our argument has precedent to support it. We're saying that everyone who was sentenced with life without parole, we're just gonna cut out the sentencing part of that law and just take them back to the next, next possible sentence, which in most cases would be a sentence of 15 years to life. They would not be resentenced by a judge. We would, as, as Mr. Schiff said in the argument, we would place the key in the hands of the parole board. And each of the people who would have now reached the parole minimum would go to the parole board and say, you know, say, make me free. And the parole board would then have the advantage of looking at the past 15 years, or in some cases, 25 years of the, that person's life and, and deciding whether or not that person was ready to be released. We've had precedent on this because this is exactly what's happened to the people convicted of murder who were between 14 and 18 since uh, 2013. That case is called Diachenko, where Massachusetts took its very youngest life without parole prisoners and said for them, certainly, according to the United States Supreme Court, life without parole is impermissible. So let's make all these children parole eligible and give it to the parole board. And the parole board released some, but not all. They used their discretion. They employed their wisdom and their training. They had hearings. There were experts. Each young person got to make his case. Of the people released, pretty much everybody did great. Nobody committed another crime. Uh, I think three of the, of the large number released were brought back in, but for small things. Everybody did great. So the parole board did great. Everybody then let out, deserved to be let out, and an enormous savings, cost savings, but also moral savings to Massachusetts. They're out, they're working, they're doing great. And that's what we hope will happen. The parole board will look at the 203 and, and winnow so, so that the people who should be released will be. So with Greenberg, You've been litigating this issue for some 13 years. There has been an argument at the Supreme Judicial Court. Tell us what happens next. 
and when? Well, Brian and Paul and I wait. <laughs> That's what happens now. And we encourage everyone who was 18, 19, and 20 to act as if they are parole eligible. This is a period of hope for our group. And each one of them should try to be in programs and take lessons and study hard. And we're encouraging the Department of Corrections to let them have that opportunity to, to show improvement. And we wait. The Supreme Judicial Court uh, has its own rule that they made up themselves that they'll try and decide a case in 120 days. But they can break 120 that days after the oral argument before the court. Right. Right. But that rule is not written in stone. They can waive their own rule and say, we need longer. And when was the argument? Monday. So but I, we may not get a decision in 120 days because what the court writes is very important. And we may not have a unanimous court. The court could split. And each side will have to write its own opinion if that happens. And what they write will matter because it will matter to 49 other states. Everyone will look to this court, just like they did with gay marriage. This court will, will write an opinion that will matter for everyone. That's a great place to take a break. This court will write an opinion that will matter for everyone about our views on children and childhood development. We're going to take a break. We are talking with attorney Ruth Greenberg, uh, who represents Sheldon Mattis before the Supreme Judicial Court on this important issue of life without possibility for parole for our children. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. But I'm going to break. I'm going to break my, going to break my rusty cage and run. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my, going to break my this rusty is cage. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me Saturdays at 9.30 a.m. as we shine a light on justice-involved underdogs, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. Unlock your future. Rewrite your story. Tune into The Hustler Files right here on WHMP. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, former college athlete and now arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. I'm proud to be one of the board-certified team of doctors who's ready to tackle any orthopedic or sports injury, from shoulders and elbows to knees and ankles and everything in between. 
With convenient locations in Springfield, East Longmeadow, and Northampton, you can trust we'll give you the best bona fide care. So visit anyortho.com to schedule your appointment today because at New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we help get you back in the game. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with attorney Ruth Greenberg, who is before the Supreme Judicial Court in a case involving the question of whether or not someone between the ages of 18 and 21 should receive a sentence of mandatory life imprisonment without possibility of parole. Ruth Greenberg, uh, before the break, you, you were humanizing these children, as you referred to the people, roughly 200, who have been sentenced to life without possibility of parole and who may be impacted by the court's ruling, who will be one way or another. And let me interrupt, and are still serving. We have over 200 people in Massachusetts prisons who are sentenced to life without even the possibility of having a parole hearing, and they're still in prison today. Between the ages of 18 and 21, Between right? 18 and 21, when they committed their crimes, and they're still in prison today. Do I understand that correctly? That's right. Massachusetts has a very large population of lifers. Almost 1,000 people are serving life without parole, and about 200 of those were under the age of 21 when the crime was committed. Yeah. And I, I think it's just so important when an attorney, instead of just, you know, dealing with black letter law, deals with human beings and talks to them. You, you have gotten to know them. Um, can you just generalize about what your experience is in talking with these um, people who are in prison without any hope of ever getting out? What, what's your experience been? Well, you know, some people come to, to law because they're interested in politics. That wouldn't have been me. I was an English major. <laughs> and I come to this practice because I'm interested in people's stories. And homicide is a very strange thing. It's, it's often a crime of passion. It's a crime of fear. Often the day that a homicide is committed, that's the worst. Of course, it's the worst thing in the world that could happen to the person and to the family. I never discount the tragedy of a crime and, and the ripple effect and, and, and for years and for generations about having a person in your family killed, in your community killed. It, it's devastating. It's devastating also for the family of the person who commits the crime. And, and it's, 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 it's overwhelming. And that person, that person continues though to live and to grow and to mature and to have relationships and, and to learn and to improve. And I'm, I'm spending time with people in their seventies, in their sixties and seventies, some in their eighties who committed a crime 50 years ago. And they are not the person that they were then. And they've, they've changed. And they've learned. And they've, they're leaders in the community in which they live. Some of them are old enough that they actually lived on furlough, were permitted to re in, in uh, more generous times. They were in and out of 
prison and working and having families on furloughs before Massachusetts got rid of that practice. And we know they can live safely in society. Some of them were out on a bail or a stay during this time period, and we know they can live in society and can contribute. Some of these people in their 40s or their 50s could take care of their aging parents who are 70 and 80. They could renew with their children who were born before they went in if they were very young parents. We see this too. We see people who have kept up their relationships with their families and whose families still need them. And we also see people who could contribute to their community, people who have helped, who have participated in programming that used to be called by that name, Scared Straight, but people who have helped young people in the community understand that gang life and murder are not the way to go. People who have been part of churches, people who have been leaders in Alcoholics Anonymous, people who have spoken to the public, people who've made music, which is shared. They, they have something to give back from what they've learned. And we're hoping that they'll have a chance to do that. So, Attorney Ruth Greenberg, I'm convinced. We, you and I have talked before about this issue. Uh, I didn't need convincing, but I think some of our listeners are saying, well, this is totally compelling. Why are we keeping people in jail for 50 years without any possibility of getting out for something they did when they were a kid and their brain was not fully developed and they didn't have that moral development? They didn't have that capacity to think rationally. They just didn't. They didn't. They didn't. And yet we keep them locked up and locked up and locked up. So at the risk of asking you something that you actually don't want to be asked, um, what's the argument against this? possibility of parole, a possibility, not a promise, a possibility of parole. What's, what is the other side saying? We just think we should keep people locked up forever? End of story? One of the purposes of criminal law and criminal punishment is retribution. Some people say, you killed my daughter, you should never see the light of day. And I understand that feeling I think if it had been a member of my family killed, I would feel that way. And people feel that way. They're not wrong to feel that way. But what's wrong is for the government to act that way. Because the government is not a, a, a tool by which people can, can express their private feelings. People feel that way. But the government has to be bigger than every individual wounded person. That's, that's our argument. The government does what's right for the state of Massachusetts. People's individual feelings are heard and understood, but they don't control. And that's why this has to be a judicial solution, it seems, and not a legislative one. Because every member of the legislature has two people to, to families who were injured and who feel strongly and who have friends and who quite, quite rightly come to their legislature and say, don't do this. Don't let my daughter's killer out. And so a lot of legislative remedy is forestalled by the strong individual voices of people who have been hurt. But the court doesn't look to an individual injury in that way. The court honors the individual injury but the court looks to the to the commonwealth to the common wheel to what's good for the state 
and the court we hope understands that the that it's the court and the state that are the teacher of mankind and that part of what the what government teaches is forgiveness and not be not revenge or not retribution that, i can't think that, i can't think of a better place to leave it ruth um not revenge um, an element of forgiveness, particularly for our children who took a wrong path when they were still children, is a possibility of redemption. And to say no possibility of parole is to ignore the fact that people change, especially when profound things like being imprisoned happen to them. We've been talking with attorney Ruth Greenberg, an expert on post-conviction remedies. Her case is before the Supreme Judicial Court arguing that children should not be in prison without the possibility of parole. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We are going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we have David Fenton, who is the chairman and the founder of Fenton Communications about his new incredible book. We're going to talk about a handbook for activists right after these messages. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The new school in Amherst at the Fort River School site will cost the average homeowner an additional $500 per year in their taxes. That is if they approve the construction of the $98 million elementary school this spring. Finance Director Sean Mangano said the project will impact property tax bills for the next 30 years when he presented town council with a preliminary look. The estimates are based on the town paying around $54 million toward the project. A teacher at Springfield's Renaissance School has been arrested on several charges, including aggravated rape of a child. According to Springfield Police, 44-year-old David Wermey of Florence was arrested around 7 a.m. on January 27th. He had been under investigation for several weeks by detectives assigned to the Special Victims Unit at the Springfield Police Department. The crimes allegedly occurred around 10 years ago when Wermey was teaching at the now-closed New Leadership Charter School in Springfield. Wermey has been placed on administrative leave since January 27th. Legislators are looking at ways to regulate sky-high electric bills. Senator Paul Mark is filing a bill with other Western Mass legislators to get the Department of Public Utilities to better regulate the energy prices in times of uncertainty and volatility. There has to be a recognition that the price of these commodities has gone down, and so accordingly the rates that people are, are, are paying need to go down as well. Mark is the lead sponsor in the Senate, while Lindsay Sabadosa and John Barrett are sponsoring the bill in the House. Mostly sunny and breezy today, a high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds tonight, overnight low 20 to 26. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow. Could be a little burst of light snow showers during the middle of the day, but mainly it's rain in the afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Mixture of sun and clouds up into the 50s on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP.
February is National Bird Feeding Month, and Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley is your bird feeding headquarters. Weinzig Nursery has a healthy selection of bird seed, feeders, suet, and more. Use multiple feeders with different seeds like black oil sunflower seed, thistle seed, and fruit and nut blends to attract a variety of birds like cardinals, tufted titmice, eastern bluebirds, and cedar waxwings. Hang suet feeders for flickers and woodpeckers. Birds have it tough in the winter, but Weinzig Nursery makes it easy for you to feed them and keep squirrels at bay with squirrel-proof feeders and baffles. Visit Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley for all of your bird feeding needs and explore our new gift shop and houseplant boutique while you're here. Weinzig Nursery Hadley and WeinzigNursery.com. Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley. We are the growers. Come to the source. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome back. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are here. I'm very excited about um, this author's uh, latest work. We are talking with David Fenton, who is the founder of Fenton Communications. Uh, uh, Fenton Communications is, was created by David to promote issue-oriented um, publicity, public relations. Uh, David was once called the Robin Hood of PR by the National Journal of Public Relations, and he was called one of the 100 most influential public relations people by PR Week. He has just written uh, yet another book, The Activist's Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. And David is on the phone with us, I think, from California. Is that right, David? The People's Republic of Berkeley. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Very good. Well, do you have a your p- passport that allows you to talk to us here in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts? Yeah, you know, I I go back and forth to the East Coast a lot, so I guess I have a passport. Okay, so I guess the best way to start this conversation about your the activist media handbook, your most recent um, book, is to we have to ask you: Could you tell us a little bit about your history? Uh, as an activist, back to your activism and why you've been involved so much for so long in progressive activism. Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a child and casualty of the late 1960s. You know, Timothy Leary famously said, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out, and I followed him faithfully and did all three. <laughs> and I also uh, came under the influence of some uh, amazing activists at that time, including someone from your community, uh, Alan Young, who uh, I met when I dropped out of high school to become a photographer at an outfit called Liberation News Service. And Liberation News Service, LNS, served all the hippie, anti-war, countercultural, underground newspapers of the time, and there were many. And Alan had left the Washington Post as a reporter in protest of their horrible coverage of the Vietnam War. And he became one of my early mentors, as did this uh, very brilliant, uh, hysterically funny activist you may have heard of called Abby Hoffman. 
And, you know, when I give talks, I ask young people if they've heard of Abby Hoffman, and most of them haven't until I say, oh, did you watch the Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago 7? And then a lot of people say yes. I'm like, Sasha Baron Cohen, that was Abby. So photographing people like Abby and members of the Black Panther Party and SDS and the anti-war protesters, you know, I got quite an education in activism and, and a different view of the world than, uh, you know, the conforming one. And then, of course, at that time, I also got to photograph a lot of great rock and roll musicians, and that affected me, too. So that's, that's my origin story. I dropped out of high school. My poor mother was very upset. <laughs> And I dropped into this alternative media and activism world of the 60s and permanently damaged and been doing it ever since. How did you get access to the political activists? I mean, there was a time of significantly and appropriate paranoia about uh, what the government might learn and who might have uh, the ability to overhear or overlook what they're doing. How did you get involved? How did they let you in? Well, I, uh, I was part of a group in high school that started a, a citywide uh, underground anti-war countercultural high school newspaper. And so that uh, gave me access to people uh, in uh, left and activist circles in New York in the late 60s. And, and gave you some street cred. That's right. And, and my photographs started getting published in a bunch of... Uh, radical newspapers and uh, and then uh, in mainstream publications and it, you know, when my mother finally was okay was when she could show her friends that the New York Times was printing my photographs with my name on it and then she was okay. <laughs> and then dropping out was okay? You got you were redeemed with mom when the Times... Well, pre- she sent me, uh, you know, uh, uh, matchbooks that said I could get a high school equivalency diploma and get a good <laughs> job until I was about 25. And I'm like, Mom, I have a good job. <laughs> but, you know, it was tough on her. Uh, you know, I was supposed to go to Harvard or something, but um, this path was a lot more fun. You know, it, I, I'm very interested in how you came to, and I think you just started to describe how you came to marry your interest in in progressive activism with communications. That is the need for the public to understand why what progressives say is good for the public. There's an expression when, when the previous president to the one that we have right now was elected and, and, and I was asking, why is it that chickens vote for Colonel Sanders? But progressive communications is to get the word out of why what we say is good for people and to try to make them understand it. How did you marry those two fields? Well, again, I, I started out as a photographer, um, but I watched Abby. And, you know, in my book, I call him my professor. Uh, you know, Abby was one of the first to see what television was going to do to American politics. And he had this uncanny ability to get the media to pay attention to what he had to say. You know, he started this little group. They called it the Youth International Party, the so-called Yippies. And, you know, the New York Times and the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite would report, you know, today the Youth International Party announced, and I'd be like, what? That's just Abby and three of his friends. How did he do that? Uh, And he kept, uh, you know, getting attention and using the attention and the celebrity to communicate progressive values and 
you know, being active in the civil rights and anti-war movement. So, you know, I started watching that very, very closely. And then I, uh, I'm from New York, but I moved to Ann Arbor to live in a hippie commune of uh, stone crazy activists in the early 1970s. And we started a third political party called the Human Rights Party. And I started doing the radio ads and writing speeches for the candidates and putting out the press releases. I had never done anything like that before. But, uh, you know, it was very successful. We won control of the Ann Arbor City government. <clears throat> and, of course, our first act was to make the sale and possession of marijuana a $5 parking ticket. Of course it was. I remember that well. And we, we and you know we we wanted to do that intrinsically, but we also wanted to pay back the marijuana dealers who had financed the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and we were kind of crazy back then. Uh, like uh, I was running a, a hippie underground newspaper in Ann Arbor called the Ann Arbor Sun, and we decided we needed a circulation boosting contest. So we're like sitting around stoned one night saying, "Well." You know, what could we give away as a grand prize in this contest to get attention? And we decided to give away a pound of Colombian marijuana, which we actually gave away in 1973 and four. Uh, and the winner turned out to be a young woman living in the dormitory, a freshman at the University of Michigan, who had never gotten high in her life. So she got quite a surprise that day. <laughs> I hope you gave her potato chips, too. We are... <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> we're talking with David Fenton. And when we come back, we're going to take a break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk about his newest book, The Activist Media Handbook. He's going to walk us through it. These are lessons from 50 years as a progressive agitator by the extraordinary activist and author, David Fenton. We'll be right back after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. 
Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our team of commercial lenders are here to help you and your business grow this year. I'm Maura Guzik, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're a small business administration preferred lender, and all of our lenders at the co-op have individual lending authority, which means fast local decisions so you can get back to business. I'm Adam Baker, Vice President of Commercial Lending. Are you ready to chat with one of our experienced local lenders? Visit bestlocalbank.com or meet with us in person at any of our Franklin or Hampshire County locations. Or if it's more convenient, we'll even meet you at your business. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Jay Sealer. Or me, Maura Guzik. Or me, Adam Baker. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with David Fenton, whose who's sort of uh, reminiscences have resonated for Bill and Buzz. Dan, you're just too young, Dan Torres. I know. He knows. I realize that. So this book, I, I, I've loved paging through your the Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator, David Fenton. So tell us about why you wrote this book and who was your audience for this book sure well yeah you can page through it because it's filled with lots of photographs and it's a very visual book it also includes you know a bunch of the iconic issue political ads that that we've done over the years so the the purpose of writing the book was really because i wanted to pass down to the next generation of activists what we've learned about the brain and public opinion and how to change it and about messaging and communications and symbolism. And uh, these are important lessons. And I'm afraid that while in the 60s and early 70s, progressives were really good at communications and symbolism and language and being in touch with mass audiences and even mass culture, uh, we're not so good at it today. And the right is uh, actually, I would say, better at simplifying and using the principles of cognitive science and linguistics to communicate. And, and we need to be better at it again. And we can be, you know, if we don't communicate well, we can't assemble majorities, get political power, and save the world, basically, and help the vulnerable and the oppressed. So, you know, I've tried to lay out basic principles of how you communicate and tell stories about how it applied. You know, we were talking during the break... You know, you had mentioned you know, one of the great symbolic acts of protest of the 1960s was when Abby Hoffman went to the visitors gallery of the New York Stock Exchange and threw dollar bills down on the trading floor. 
And lo and behold, all trading stopped as the traders on the floor went grabbing for the dollar bills. There was pandemonium. And Abby exposed what that trading floor was really all about. It was hysterical. And now when you go there, there's a glass wall on the visitor's gallery, so you can't do it again. You know, for, for years I kept trying to get someone to go to the visitor gallery at the House of Representatives and throw by then $5 or $10 bills down on the House floor. I figured the same thing would happen again. And you could make a bit of a symbolic statement about money and politics, but I could never get anybody to do it. Maybe it's still a good idea. Maybe it's still a good idea, but speaking of the House of Representatives, last that chamber last night was used as the uh, as the uh, forum for the State of the Union address by President Biden, who is in no way an activist in the way that we're talking about activism. But at the same time, I'm wondering, somebody who's into communication, somebody who's a progressive and wants to get messaging out, when you watched, if you watched, what did you see from a communications expert perspective in the way that the president presented both uh, what he's done and what he intends to do? Well, you know, I think it was really a very good speech, and he worked on it a long time and rehearsed it a lot. And, you know, his ability to ad lib in the face of, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, screaming was really impressive, frankly. Uh, I, you know, he, he was very agile. You know, I think he did a really great job. Um, I was also happy. It was the first time I saw Joe Biden use the word pollution in talking about climate change. And, you know, this is what I focus on now is communicating climate change, because if we don't solve this, we're not going to get to solve much else, unfortunately. And while Biden helped pass, you know, the, the best climate change bill in American history, and kudos to him, he's not really used the presidency very well to teach the public about what this threat is, where it comes from. Like, you'll never see him say it comes from burning oil, coal, and gas, for example. I guess he doesn't want to offend the industries trying to extinguish life on Earth. But I thought he did a great job, actually, very good job. And that's clearly the public reaction also. Can I ask a question about the presentation itself? I was struck by how Biden did not wait for the applause to die down and for people to sit down. He just kept talking. And that was unusual. What I'm used to seeing is there's a statement. The senators and representatives from the president's party stand up and give him a stand a standing ovation, and then they sit down, and then the president continues. That's not what he did last night. Did you think the way he did it and the way he continued his speech, even while the uh, audience was standing and clapping, was effective? Yeah, I think that's a good observation. You know, in the TikTok uh, low attention span era, you have to keep going, <laughs> pausing, and people will turn the dial. So I think he did a good job. Hey, I want to go back for just a second to his uh, using the word pollution. So you know, one of the things I'm trying to communicate in this book is that we have to use simple language that everyone understands instantly. You know, linguists explain that over our lifetimes, as we're exposed to language, we, it causes the growth of circuits, actual electronic circuits in our brains that are called frames. So, for example, in the climate movement, when you say we have to get to net zero, nobody knows what you mean. There's no existing mental circuitry for net zero. 
when you say, as he did last night, we have to do something about pollution, everybody instantly, their brains light up, they know what pollution is, and nobody, by the way, thinks pollution is a good idea. So we have to be careful to use simple terms that people instantly understand. And we also need to recognize the first principle of communications is when you have those simple messages, you have to repeat them and repeat them and repeat them because only repetition enters the brain. Now, Trump really understood this. When I say make America great again, you know, a lot of people cringe, but we need to understand that works. Mm. Uh, David Fenton, so we have this conservative media, which is, you know, uh, a Bible um, to so many people. How does a progressive activist who wants to use the media to further progressive issues, how does it get over the hump with the foxes of the world? Well, you know, you don't need everybody to make change. You need, you know, large majorities. And luckily, only a small minority of older white people watch Fox. That's not to say it isn't a big problem. It's a huge problem. The intentional, knowing, purposeful spreading of lies and deceit for money and power for Rupert Murdoch. It's disgusting. They've created an alternative reality for about 30% of Americans. So we have to fight them by being more imaginative than they are. And this is why I have issues with our tendencies on the left to be too ideological and to use obscure language. You know, I'm sorry, if you want to use terms like cis-normative, you should do that in your own small group, but don't mistake that for effective public communications. Nobody knows what you mean. Bill, can you hand me the, the dictionary, please? I have to figure out what that means. <laughs> I'm going to take it, Buzz. You do know what it means. But I think the point is well taken. We need to communicate. We need to talk to people where they are, not where we hope they might be someday. Yeah, well, that's a principle number one, you know, and you also need to use visual imagery. You, 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 know, you need to use symbols that people instantly understand. And, and you also have to make sure that you are reaching people and reaching them repetitively. You can't hope you're reaching people. You know, there, there is marketing and cognitive science. There are ways using social media targeting that you can be sure you reach people and reach them repetitively. And that's and a great place. To really do this. I'm sorry, David, we have to break. It's a great place to break. You do reach them in the activist media handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. We are all indebted to your activism over decades and decades to make us all better. Thank you so much, David Fenton. Great pleasure. Our pleasure. And we'll join you tomorrow, Thursday, on Talk to Talk. From Colorado, Kansas, and the Carolinas, too. Virginia and Alaska, from the old to the... I grew up in a normal home in a normal town. All of a sudden, everything got crazy. I didn't talk to anybody about the way I was feeling. I was scared and I was alone. I started drinking. I just didn't want to deal with what was happening in my life. I knew about AA, but thought I was too young. I found out I was wrong. If you have a problem with your drinking, why don't you give AA a call? Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton WHMQ Greenfield Northampton Radio Group Station It's 11 o'clock